Shall we pray together as we look at these words? Loving Father, help me, I pray, to speak faithfully. Help us to listen and to respond faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And it's wonderful to have an opportunity to preach on what is a lovely passage from God's Word. It's a challenging passage, of course, uh, because we've got to work out how this charming, romantic tale from all those years ago applies to God's people today. What do we do with Ruth and Boaz? Take what they did as a guide for dating? Uh, Do we keep it in the kind of cultural and social history section of our minds, an interesting insight into early Iron Age culture in the Middle East, but perhaps nothing more? No, of course, as we've, I'm sure, as you've seen already in this sermon series, God is doing something far more significant in the book of Ruth than a a history lesson, a dating guide, or giving cultural insight. What is happening in the book of Ruth is through God's providence and grace. A chain of events is set in motion that led not just to God providing a husband for Ruth, but to him providing a king for Israel. And more than that, to him providing a savior for the world. So this might seem on first inspection like a rather parochial little story about an inconsequential couple who fall in love some 30 centuries ago. It is so much more. It's the story of God's transforming grace, of his providential care. It's the story of active faith, and it's the story of amazing grace. And those are going to be our points this morning. Um, The first two points are really uh, just a recap of chapters one and two. So firstly, the story of transforming grace. Let me just remind you of the story so far. As I'm sure you'll remember, it's bleak times um, in in the time of the judges. And the time of the judges uh, was a time when there was no king, and therefore it was a time of mayhem. The writer of the book of Judges frames it like this, everyone did as they thought was right. There was no rule of law, apparently, at that time. As well as being the time of the judges, it was a time of famine. We're not quite sure how bad the famine was, but it was bad enough, it seems, for a man, Elimelech, to take his, uh, his wife and his sons to a foreign land. It was a time, at least for that family, perhaps, of wavering. Why choose Moab, of all places? Moab, a place that had an implacable hatred for Israel and the people of Israel, place that worshipped a different god, the god Chemosh, and the worship of that god is described in the Old Testament as an abomination. Um, Sacrifices were required, and not just the sacrifices of grain or of animals, but the sacrifices of human beings in order to worship Chemosh, the sacrifices even sometimes of children. Why end up there? Well, of course, because they had food, but there are other countries that had food. Why Moab? Were they wavering in their faith in Yahweh, perhaps? And then finally, it's the days of bereavement. I guess that's how the story begins, isn't it? Because at some point in their journey, all the men of the family die. Elimelech, the father dies. Marlon, the eldest, dies. Kilion, the son, the youngest son, dies. And the women are left alone and bereft. It is rock bottom. Calamity upon calamity 
has engulfed these three women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And then something remarkable happens. The grace of God, which has been working invisibly throughout, comes to the surface, and you can begin to see it. Naomi proposes to return to Israel. She counsels her two daughters-in-law to return to their previous homes. Orpah agrees, Ruth resists. Even though a future with Naomi in Israel would have meant very likely for Ruth no husband, no children, no security, maybe even no food, she says to Naomi in chapter 1, verse 16, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. They are lovely words that speak of the fact that God's grace is already beginning to be at work on her heart. Who is Ruth? She is a heathen, Moabitess, who presumably had no knowledge of God and worshipped only Chemosh, Chemosh, up to this point. So she's a an idolater. She is an outsider. She has no claim on Yahweh. But presumably she's heard something about him through Elimelech and Naomi and she's being drawn to him by God's wonderful grace. What a relief it must have seemed for Ruth to hear that there is a God, the one true God, whose worship does not involve the child sacrifice, but who is kind and gentle and loving. What a relief. No wonder she wants to go with Naomi back to Israel. And then in chapter 2, of course, when she meets Boaz, Boaz prays for her, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. No wonder she is, as it were, scuttling under the wings of God for shelter and protection. It's the story of transforming grace. It's the story of providential care. And that's really chapter two. They arrive back in Israel in time for the harvest. So the very first thing that happens when they get back is that Ruth goes out into the field to start gleaning, to start collecting some food in this famine for uh, her and for Naomi. It seems perhaps that the famine has begun to pass. As luck would have it, the field that she's working in belongs to a man called Boaz, a distant relative of Elimelech, who is required by law to look after these widows upon their return. And I love the way the writer puts it, as it turns out, he said, she just happened to stumble into his field. Of all the fields in all the world, it happened to be his. What a chance encounter. What a break. What a fluke. You can almost see the writer's eyes twinkle as he writes it. Of course, he knows it's no such thing. It's God's providential hand at work. And then providence is added to providence because it's not just that he is a kinsman of Elimelech who has, it seems, responsibilities towards them. He is a godly man. He might not have been. He might have been someone who was heartless and harsh and cruel. He isn't. We see it for the first time in chapter 2, verse 4, with his first words. He greets the harvesters who are in his field with the words, 
the Lord be with you. And uh, if they were, they were Anglican harvesters, I guess they would have responded, and also with you. They don't appear to be Anglicans. We're not going to hold that against them. Uh, the Lord bless you, uh, they reply. It's just a hint, isn't it, that Boaz is a man who thinks much about God. That's his, his uh, knee-jerk, is to go in his mind to the Lord. And so that proves, as the chapter goes on, and Boaz gets to know Ruth a little, and hears of her situation, he provides for her. He makes sure she can go about her business in safety. So to the transforming grace of chapter one is added the providential care of chapter two. And if you're someone in adversity right now, I suggest to you that chapters one and two are very special. They're wonderful chapters. Because you know, don't you, that you, we don't just have a God of history working out all the events of our lives according to the purposes of his will. We have a God of grace who is able to bring good out of evil, however evil the situation may seem. He's able to bend events to the purposes of his gracious plan. Well, by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 3, we're in a rather curious position. On the one hand, things are beginning to look up for Naomi and Ruth. They're back in the land. They have a benefactor called Boaz, and they're being taken care of. But the problem, the main problem that's existed since chapter 1 remains. There's no home. There's no family. There's no husband. There's no children, which all of which together back then meant there was no security for these two women. They're okay in the short term, but there's a long-term problem that remains. Which brings us to our third point. This is the story of active faith. Our chapter begins with the words, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, this actually represents quite a change in Naomi. She has been fairly negative for understandable reasons up to this point in the book of Ruth. She has been bereaved three times over, and that has led, again, understandably, to her being rather turned in on herself and introspective. She's described herself as being bitter. Maybe she's depressed. Certainly, she's grieving. In fact, even when they get back to Bethlehem and Ruth proposes to go out into the fields and to start collecting grain, what does Naomi do? She does nothing. She remains at this point entirely passive, again, for understandable reasons because of what's happened to her. By the beginning of chapter 3, something appears to have changed. For the first time in the book, her faith, it seems, becomes active. I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. The trigger, it seems, was in, that in, in chapter 2, she heard that the field that Ruth had been gleaning in had belonged to Boaz, and Boaz was, as she immediately knew, a close relative of her husband Elimelech. And so, to quote uh, chapter 2, verse 20, one of our guardian redeemers, one of our kinsmen redeemers. And it appears that Naomi has in mind two Old Testament laws. One was from Leviticus chapter 25, 
where a next of kin was required to step in when poverty had so struck someone that they had to part with some of their property or some of their land. It was up to these, this kinsman, this so-called kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, to redeem that property, to redeem the land that was that person's inheritance and to buy it back. But there's another law in Deuteronomy chapter 25 where we learn that a widow should not be left to fend for herself in the event of the death of her husband in Old Testament times in Israel. If she wanted it, she could look to the brother of her late husband or some other near kinsman of that kind in order to marry again and provide security. She could look to a kinsman redeemer, a guardian redeemer, and that was who Boaz was, a member of Elimelech's family, a near kinsman who has responsibilities before God to provide security for them. And so Naomi decides to take the initiative. Verse 2, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. What do you make of those instructions that Naomi is giving? Is this a good thing for Naomi to be suggesting to Ruth? Is it a good idea for Ruth to do it? I think we have to say no and yes, don't we, all at the same time. To some extent, the answer has to be no. I mean, she is, after all, appearing to push a younger woman into uh, perhaps marrying someone she doesn't know very well, and she's just a little too canny in the way she goes about doing it, isn't she? Go and put on your you know, nicest dress and have a shower. Put a bit of Chanel number five behind the ears. You need to time it right. Wait till he's had his pie and chips and uh, maybe had a drink or two. And don't just go straight up to him and blurt out, so what's the deal between us? Are we going out or what, what's happening? Just play it. Go and lie down. Wait till he's fallen asleep and all the... It's a little too canny, isn't it? You have to say that. This is not terribly sensible stuff. She's encouraging Ruth into a fairly risky and provocative position in the middle of the night. How wise really is this? And Boaz seems to agree. I love that little line in verses 8 and 9. In the middle of the night, something startled Boaz. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asks. And what on earth are you doing here? So this is not, it seems, completely uncritical in terms of the way the story is told. We are not meant to read this, it seems to me, as a model for dating. This is not how people, how Christians should get together. But there is something profoundly good that is going on here. Naomi is stepping out in faith. She knows that God has made a provision for kinsmen redeemers in the Old Testament. She is aware that God has brought Boaz into their lives. She knows that he is a close relative. And so she steps out in faith and acts. Is it risky? Yes. 
Is it a bit foolish? Perhaps. But is there something commendable about what she does? Certainly. And so too with Ruth. She does, after all, do what her mother-in-law suggests. She puts on her makeup and the Chanel number no. five. She goes to the threshing floor in the middle of the night and she lays down. And after a while, he does wake up. And what does she say? Verse nine, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer for our family. This is a high wire act for Ruth. She stands to lose pretty much everything. Her reputation, her safety, her future. It's not super smart, but there is something commendable about it. She is in effect asking Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer back in chapter two. When, it, when she says, spread the corner of your garment over me, that's the same word that's used by Boaz of the wing of the Lord. Boaz had prayed that she would come under the Lord's wings, the Lord's protection and safety. And here is Ruth not going up to Boaz and offering him a, a good time that night. She is asking him, will he answer? His, be the answer to his own prayer. In effect, will he marry her and take that responsibility that God has laid out in the Old Testament? This is active faith. It's not a model for us in every situation. I say that again. This is not how we're to get a husband or a wife. Even by the conventions of the time, this was highly unusual and extremely risky. But there is a model for us here of initiative-taking, bold faith. We know, I guess, that true faith is never entirely passive. Rightly, it should lead to activity. And of course, there are lots of reasons, uh, or rather lots of times, when we don't know how something will work out. But that is not a reason to fail to trust God and to fail to step out and act. Some Christians seem to spend most of their lives sitting and waiting for God to bring about just the right set of circumstances that they have in their minds before they do something, before they take a risk. But it's possible, isn't it, that we can be so afraid of ever making a mistake that we never actually do it. We never, I don't know, give that money. We never go on that mission trip. We never make that costly decision, whatever it may be. It's important that we're not foolish, but may the Lord save us from passivity and cowardliness. John Wesley once said, I'd rather have one firebrand working with me who I have to cool down than 10 unenthusiastic men who have to be warmed up. Or take William Carey. He was a shoemaker for 12 years in Northampton, during which time he was converted. He became a lay preacher. And in 1792, he preached his famous sermon, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And a year later, he sailed for India. He worked ceaselessly, preaching, translating the Bible, evangelizing, church planting, educating, doing medical work. He supervised the translation of the Bible into 36 languages, 
and he pioneered countless social reforms. We are not all William Carey. We are all called to an active faith. It's the story of transforming grace, of providential care, of active faith, and it's the story of amazing grace. This is where we finish up in the chapter, really. We've already seen how Ruth and Naomi reflect something of the love of God, how Naomi, out of concern for Ruth, steps out, um, how Ruth, with servant-hearted love, goes to work in the field. There's concern for others, like God. There's servant-heartedness, like God. What about Boaz? How does he respond to all this? Well, with astonishing godliness and grace. He doesn't take advantage of her. He doesn't compromise her. He is gracious and godly. Verse 10 the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you whatever you ask. All the people of the town know that you are a woman of noble character. It's typical of Boaz, isn't it? He focuses on the Lord and he focuses on Ruth. The last thing on his mind is taking advantage of her. He wants to welcome her, and he wants to do everything she asks for. Now, Boaz doesn't need to do this, actually. Despite what we've been thinking about so far, he doesn't need to. That's why I use the word grace in the heading. It becomes clear as the passage goes on that Boaz is not the closest relative. He's not the closest kinsman to Naomi and Ruth. So that even though there is an Old Testament law about being a kinsman redeemer, it doesn't, in the first instance, apply to him. And Boaz knows that. And Boaz could have used that fact as a way of getting out of it. He could have used the law as an escape route. But he doesn't. He is godly, and he's noble, and he's gracious. I will keep that law he will, if at all possible, marry her. And that's where, where the chapter ends, with waiting. We're not sure at this stage how the, how the story's going to finish. Boaz has to speak to this closer kinsman and see what comes. Naomi and Ruth are left waiting. But Boaz is determined that very soon, one way or another, this will be resolved. If at all possible, he will do it. And of course, what we have as this chapter comes to an end is a little picture of the gospel. Just as Ruth, an outsider and a sinner with nothing to offer Boaz, no claim on him, comes up to him and just hopes that it will work out. So we too are outsiders and sinners before God. We have nothing in and of ourselves to offer. We have no credit in the bank, no nothing at all to recommend us before him. And yet what does Boaz do? It's just a little picture of the far more even wonderful response of God who brings those who are cut off into the center of his purposes 
into the center of his family, into the center of his heart. And that's really the point of the book of Ruth. It's not just a boy meets girl story from 31 centuries ago. It's not just about God providing a husband for Ruth. It is about God providing a king for Israel, and that will become more and more clear next week as uh, it will be revealed that through Boaz and Ruth's line, a child is born and then a child is born that leads to the birth of David, who would be king over Israel. But it's about even more than that. As that line continues, we find Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus Christ through this coming together of Boaz and Ruth we find that God is providing a savior for the world. It's not just Ruth who depended on the kindness of a man from Bethlehem. We do too. Not Boaz, but Jesus. This story is in some ways about how God welcomes us and brings us in. I want to end with this, if I may. I've got a friend who was very much in love with her boyfriend. Um, but felt it was necessary for her to tell him about her past. She had a fairly checkered history, and they were getting serious, and she thought probably it's right for him to know. He took her out to dinner one night, and um, she thought this is the moment. So she started to speak, to tell him, and it just began tumbling out. She didn't hold anything back. It all came out, and she was weeping as she spoke. And he sat there, apparently stony-faced, not saying anything throughout. And as she was speaking, she thought, well, this is it. This is going to be the end of the relationship. When she'd finished, there was a long pause, at which point the guy stood up, came round to her side of the table, took her hand, knelt down, and said to her, I love you no matter what you've done. Marry me. Which I I find that rather affecting, but that's because I know them both really well. They're close friends of mine. There is something about of that sort that is going on in the book of Ruth. It's us, as it were, coming to God vulnerable as outsiders, as sinners, with nothing nothing to offer him. And it's him reaching out his hand to us, taking us into the center of his heart and into the center of his family in grace. Let's pray together. Thank you for what you're like, Heavenly Father. Thank you that you show it all through your word, but not least through this lovely story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Thank you for your kindness and your grace. Help us to understand it that much more deeply, to be affected by it, and to live in the light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.